Good evening. It's April. <laughs> Sunshine is coming. April showers. Spring is coming. Flowers. Yes. Well, let's start with prayer tonight, and then we will just review where we are in the book of Jonah and carry on, because there's lots in this chapter for tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening and we're thankful for your grace and your mercy that you extend to us. We're thankful that as we gather, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that you would continue to speak to us through this book of Jonah. Challenge us, convict us, and lead us into the life that you would call us to, to live, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the book of Jonah, once again, four chapters, one of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament, which deals with the prophet Jonah, who is the son of Amittai and who ministers during the reign of King Jeroboam II. This is not the only mission that Jonah has during his prophetic ministry. We see it also presented in uh, the Kings and Chronicles of other missions where he ministers to the northern kingdom of Israel. But this is one particular mission which God calls him to perform, and that is to go to the great city of Nineveh, which, once again, geography-wise, would have been east. I know I said west before. East. That's west to you. That's east to me. There you go. East. A great distance and part of the land of Assyria. So Nineveh was not part of Israel. And so we've seen how the prophet responded to that call in chapters 1 and 2. The rebellion. He attempts to flee from the Lord, seeking to board a ship full of a bunch of Gentile mariners headed west for Tarshish, which in Spain, that's as far as west you could go at that time as for an Israelite. You can't go any further than Spain. That's all that's known. So he doesn't just take off, but he runs as far as he can to get away from the presence of the Lord. And so in great detail in chapter 1, we saw the Lord's discipline through the storm that comes upon them and his continued mercy towards the rebellious prophet by providing a large fish to swallow him even when he continues to disobey. And all the while, this discipline leads to his great act of repentance and forgiveness that is extended to him by God. And so in chapters 1 and 2, the first part of the book of Jonah, we have learned so many important truths about the character and nature of God, about the helpless state of humanity and the depraved, sinful nature and how it wrestles with the will of God. And of course, our conclusion with chapter 2 last week, we saw how God can ultimately tackle and captivate a sinful, depraved, rebellious heart. We've already also begun to discuss the ways in which Jonah's ministry points to Christ's ministry. Remember, as a prophetic book in the Old Testament, it's not just speaking of a life of a prophet, but it's pointing to the future about the ministry of Christ, the one who would perform the sign of Jonah and ultimately be greater than Jonah himself. So in chapters 1 and 2, we have seen all these truths already. This evening, we dive further into the book of Jonah as we begin the second half of the book by looking at chapter 3. And so we're going to start by just reading chapter 3 in its entirety, and then we'll tear it apart bit by bit like we've done the other chapters. So chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. 
saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, But neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And God saw their works. They turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. So chapter 3. This follows chapters 1 and 2, obviously, in the book. But scholars note that we don't know for sure whether or not this event immediately took place after he was spit out of the fish. So it's not as if we know that Jonah was spit out, went back to the northern kingdom, and all of a sudden, here we go again. There may have been some time in between then. But what we do know for certain is that sometime after Jonah repented and was spit up from the fish, when God had mercy upon him, the word of the Lord came to him again. God, the omnipresent creator of all who cannot be escaped, though his prophet had rebelled against him, was going to use Jonah again to continue to be his prophet and declare his message. Not only was his status as prophet to be upheld by God, but the very mission which God had for him had not changed. So here we see a deja vu moment for the prophet Jonah. He is to go to the great city of Nineveh. And we talked already about what it means by the great city of Nineveh. We talked in the way that it is great because of the great wickedness which defined Nineveh. We talked in the first night we met that Nineveh and Assyrians empire in general was known for their wickedness and their mistreatment of one another and those that would oppose them. They would cut off the fingers of those that they were trying to take captive and shake their hands as they died. For they cut their head off and then put their heads on a pole and made their families march them around town. Very similar to terrorist activity that you could see today, scholars note. So the great wickedness of that city, God's mission has not changed. Jonah, you are to go to them. But now we also begin to see great in terms of its size. It's a very large city. In fact, it says it took three days just to walk through it. Now out of curiosity... I went to Google Maps, and I tried to figure out what could you do in three days around here when it comes to walking. The average walker, what could you accomplish in a three-day walk? And according to Google Maps, you can do three round trips from this church to Parliament and back 
in three days. That is a lot of walking. But that's how long it took to go through Nineveh in total. It was a huge city, one of the big political capitals of Assyria. And so this is a mighty, mighty big area. And scholars also note not just the fact that it's massive should be considered great, but it's great because we see in the book of Jonah that it is important to God. It is a big, big city full of lots of people that matter to the Creator. And so out of compassion and love for them, he sends the prophet Jonah to them to preach against their wickedness. So once again, Jonah, calling you to go to a land which is not part of Israel, a city which is great in wickedness, in size, and is important to me, even though they're not part of Israel. A land which is hostile towards those who do not side with them. And I'm calling you to get up and to head east and make your journey to them by yourself. Don't go with anybody else. That you may go and cry out against them and proclaim my judgment and ultimately with that proclaim repentance. And once again, this divine appointed mission had not changed, and here it comes again to Jonah. The very fact that the word again occurs, or if your translation says for a second time, reminds us that Jonah has received this call before. God who it came from has not changed. The mission to which he is called has not changed. But the response that Jonah gives to that call now begins to change. Because here we see when the call comes again, he does not flee from the Lord. He does not head west to try to escape God's presence. He doesn't even wrestle with the call. You know, he doesn't need to sit down and pray about it as to whether or not this is the Lord leading him to a specific task and to discern really if this is actually God speaking or not. And nor does he feel that based on his past failure that he is inadequate or unworthy to go. The prophet's not stuck in shame based on his past failure or feeling that he's unable to deal with it and get past his shortcoming. Rather, he simply is described as getting up and going. The Lord speaks, he obeys. What a difference to the previous chapters and the actions of the prophet Jonah. Lord speaks, the call has not changed one bit, but he gets up and he goes. There are some truths that are revealed to us as we look at the actions of Jonah and ultimately God's call to Jonah that is extended to him once again. First thing we're going to take away from the fact that the call was given to Jonah again. 
God is the God of second chances. When it comes to missed opportunities to share his message with people, God graciously extends his people more opportunities to do so. Look at chapters 1 and 2, and Jonah messed up. He didn't mess up once just by going down to Joppa to get onto the boat, but he messed up as he continued to persist in disobedience and seeking to flee from the Lord. Even as he was tossed into the sea, ready to face death itself and the consequences of sin, he messed up. But let me ask you a question that I also have to ask myself. Have we ever completely blown opportunities to share the word of God with people? Whether you've just not said it because you're being defiant to God and you ended up talking about everything else with the person but the word of God or the gospel. Maybe you were afraid, maybe you didn't think you knew how to do it, but the opportunity still passed you by. Anybody ever had those moments before? I've had way, way too many. You're driving away in your car and you're saying, man, I missed it. I missed the shot. It was right before me. I was even praying for it and I still missed it. Well, good news for those who find themselves in that position. We see from the ministry of the grace that God gives to this prophet Jonah God gives his people second chances. In fact, he gives them multiple chances. God does not hold our past mistakes in failing to witness against us, but forgives us, and his grace continues to give us new opportunities to minister to people. And sometimes, as in the case of Jonah, he gives us the grace to minister to the very people that we had missed out on in the first place. <clears throat> good, good news for a church and disciples that can just simply pass missional opportunities. Second thing, through the actions of Jonah, the fact that he simply just gets up and goes. The mission hasn't changed. He's going to the same hostile city. Reminds us that God can transform a disobedient prophet into a fearlessly obedient prophet. Why did Jonah not obey in the first place in chapters 1 and 2? Well, we saw based on his own confession that it was his own interest and will before the will of God. When he was asked who he was and what his identity was based upon, he said, I am a Hebrew. And then I worship the Lord. His nation, his nation's interests, his nationalism came before his God. 
And so he didn't obey. Selfishness that caused him from being obedient. We see this in the story of the Apostle Peter in the New Testament. Weren't you with him? No. No, you're definitely with him. We saw you there. No. No, we, you, you're from Galilee. We know you're one of his. I don't know the man. What's he looking out for? His own interests. His Lord's being put on trial. He can see the trial happening. He knows what the trial is about. And selfishly, he does not obey God. But betrays and denies Christ. If you look at my own life, there have been so many reasons why I have not obeyed the mission to speak God's word before people. And, and there's reasons like this. I don't love people enough. I'd rather use my own time or energy to focus on myself. I'm afraid of what people may say or how it may affect relationships. Ultimately, this unfaithfulness is ignorance to God and his will because my will has come before. My own selfishness has been demonstrated before his will. But here we see that God has the ability to completely turn that around. Completely make a disciple who once struggles to share the word of God with people because of his own selfishness or her own selfishness and make them somebody who desires God's will above their own. Obedient to God, desiring to be bold to proclaim his message over their own interests. To be obedient to God and his will above everything. We see that transformation as we've seen in chapters 1 and 2. Now to chapter 3, we see that transformation in Jonah. So if you find yourself someone who struggles with being obedient to proclaiming the good news of God, because here's the reminder, church, we're not called to just decide to be missional when we want to be. Well, today I think I'm going to go out there and be a missional disciple. No, it's a command. It's the call. It's part of following Christ. It's always there. But we are going to need a serious transformation in our lives if we're going to be obedient and desire to be obedient every day of our lives. God's will above our own, no matter the cost. Jonah goes confidently to Nineveh to proclaim judgment against them. Now remember how awful Nineveh was when it came to treating those who opposed them. And here, this prophet is so dedicated now to the will of God and the purpose of God that he's willing to go and proclaim God's message despite the fact that it may mean harm for him. Faithfulness to God, no matter the cost. Tim Keller, pastor in New York and theologian, says if you want a comparison to what this would have been like to compare... Jonah going to Nineveh and preaching judgment, he says, imagine a single Jew going out to speak and protest against Hitler in Germany. 
in front of all the Nazis. It's not any difference. We're dealing with a city that is wicked and hostile and in past would simply not have even listened to Jonah to put him to death. But yet Jonah goes. God's will, God's purpose above his own, no matter the cost. So God can change a disobedient prophet into an obedient prophet. As a result of this, Jonah goes to Nineveh. We see him begin to preach. Began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he goes in the city, he preaches judgment against sin. Once again, this message is not a message of comfort, but it's a message of destruction for their wickedness. It says, in 40 days, this city will be overthrown. This entire city, which takes three days to walk through. Arrogant. Proud city. Who could ever destroy Nineveh, perhaps would be the question that would be asked with such a big city. Jonah, the prophet of God, goes and says, in 40 days, this entire city will be overthrown. Now, overthrown is a word that has been used before when it comes to destroying cities in the Old Testament. Anybody ever heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Exactly the same word. Just as God has done so in the past, he will now do with you, Nineveh, in 40 days. Unless you repent from your wickedness, which has arisen before the God of heaven and earth, he is going to exercise his wrath against you, and you will be utterly destroyed, just as he has done in the past, so he will do to you. So things, important truths that we are reminded about as we look at the preaching of the prophet Jonah to the Ninevites. First of all, we're reminded about the reality of the serious nature of sin and how the sovereign God responds to it. Sin is a serious offense against God. If we look at sin, or any sin, no matter what it is, and we start to say, well, that's just a small sin, or that's just a tiny thing, no big deal. We forget the seriousness of sin. Sin is something not to be celebrated or treated lightly or rejoiced in. It's a serious, irrational offense that is against the maker of heaven and earth. And so Nineveh, as Assyrians, as they embraced wickedness, every single one of them, from the greatest of them to the least of them, was guilty of offending the living God. 
and he knew their sin. He saw their offenses against him. And he has to act according to his own just nature and judge it. And deal with sin. See, God cannot and will not overlook sin. A lot of people in our world will just say, well, what was the big deal of sending Jonah to preach against this city? Can't God just have forgiven them? Couldn't he just deal with it himself? Same with Christ. Why would God come into the world to do everything that he did through Christ? Why couldn't he just simply say you're forgiven? No, justice for sin had to take place. judgment so therefore judgment is being announced to Nineveh but though judgment is the appropriate wage though death itself is the appropriate wage for sin we are also reminded as Jonah goes to Nineveh that God the just God who judges sin is also the merciful God We see this in the fact that he doesn't just judge them. He doesn't just pour out destruction upon them. He could have done that, and he would have been right in doing so, just in his own ways. But he is also a God of mercy because he says it's not going to happen for what? Forty days. There's a chance. There's a time in which you can turn from this. You can turn from this wickedness which offends the living God. And Jonah is sent to administer the fact that God is just, but he is also merciful. And we see in this passage, we see in the scriptures, that though God is faithful to judge, and that is part of his character, the living God, the creator of the heavens and earth, before judgment, always desires to show mercy. He has to judge sin, because sin is a serious offense, but God always, before judgment, desires to show mercy. Therefore, Nineveh, you've got 40 days for this to be undone, for this to be dealt with. You have a chance to repent and be spared. God, in his gracious nature, gives the sinners time to change their ways, to turn, repent. Ultimately, grace before judgment is shown through the gospel of Christ. Every one of us sitting at this table is worthy of hell. And God would be fully just if he had simply just said, into hell you shall go. 
for we committed sin, which was a serious offense and violation of God's holiness. But Christ comes first to show us that God desires to extend mercy before judgment. He's still going to carry out the judgment, but he gives a chance first for the mercy to be tasted. So Nineveh had 40 days. What does this world have? We don't know. Jesus says he's coming soon, but based on our timetable, soon kind of a little longer than soon. Second Peter, Peter talks about this timetable. A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years to God. But the reason... The reason why there's a time period between Christ's ascension and the judgment is because God desires no one to perish. He wants people to taste the mercy. Judgment will be carried out, but there's a chance for people to repent and turn to him. He desires to show mercy first. So we can look around and see all the things that are happening in the world and say, God, what in the world? Now would be a really good time to show up. Why has judgment not fully come? Because God is still extending his mercy through Christ first that people may turn. Forty days for Nineveh and sure a heck of a lot of time for this world. So here's the question that flows out of this. If God, who is the maker of heaven and earth and the one whose sin is a violation against, if it's his law that is being offended, if it's his nature that's being attacked, if it's his name that's being dishonored with sin, if he is seeking to extend mercy first before judgment and he's being patient with sinners even though they continue to rebel against him, should the church not be the exactly same way with the world? Should we not desire mercy before judgment? Should we not desire to be patient with those that continue to sin because our God continues to demonstrate patience, giving them a chance to continue to hear the truth and believe? You know, I've had lots of conversations with people Myself, at times, you know, when you deal with family members or friends who aren't saved and you see their behavior and you see their life and how they're continuing to walk just in complete rebellion against God, you know, people are saying, I'm just, oh, just the wreck of their lives are hurting people. I just want to hit them. I want to shake them. I want to give them a good two by four across the head. Well, if the creator of the universe is patiently enduring and looking down and continuing to be patient with them, extending out the hope of the gospel, because mercy comes before judgment, you need to continue to be patient with them. Continue to pour out and hold out the gospel, giving them the chance for them to taste mercy and not the judgment or the 
judgmental actions that can come from the people of God who are supposed to be holding up the gospel, not judgment. Jonah's going to be called to have patience with Nineveh. He has no idea what's going to happen. But he knows at least for 40 days I'm going to be preaching a message of judgment. And they may not respond. They may continue. They may even want to kill me and put my head on a pole and march me around the city. God is extending this time period to be gracious to them that they may have the mercy and taste God's grace in this time. So if he's being patient with them before judgment, I better be patient with them too. <clears throat> I had a conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago who was talking about some of our friends that aren't saved and we all had the chance to hang out one evening and the language that was coming from their mouths and the behavior that they were talking about and one of them was saying, oh, isn't that just awful? Like, isn't that just such depressing stuff? And the reality is one of my friends, what do you expect? What do you expect from people who are not saved? Who do not have the spirit of God or the spirit of freedom with them? You're expecting good acts? I am shocked that they're acting this way. I am shocked that they, are, that they are so disrespectful. I am shocked that they lie. I am shocked that they steal. I am shocked that they enjoy the alcohol way too much. I am shocked. Why are we shocked with sinners' actions? Rather than treating them with judgmental comments or saying, isn't that the awful? Isn't that horrible? We should be extending the grace and the mercy before judgment because that's God's job and we are called to be patient. So it's just an important reminder through this 40-day period, that God extends grace and patience first before judgment. So we must do the same. Then there's some things we learn about the preaching of God's word and the proclamation of his truth that we see revealed in this passage. Now there's a few of them that are revealed here, so I'm going to try to do this as best as possible, but the first one is that the preacher or the one who proclaims God's word is always sent out by God. Notice the Lord does not say to Jonah, Arise and stay put, for I shall bring this wicked generation unto you. No, he says, Arise and go. Go. Those who God calls... He sends out. Those who are to proclaim the message of God are called and sent out to proclaim it. Such is the case with the church. Go into all the world. Go, go, go. Elgin Street Baptist, you are called to go. As we leave this place this evening, we are called to go to this town. To the workplaces, to the streets, to the schools, to wherever God places you, we're called to go and share the good news. Now, that, that's not saying that God, by his mercy and grace in some ways, doesn't bring people to you for opportunities. We see that. Be ready to give a, a reason for the hope that you have, because there will be opportunities where God will bring people to you and they will ask you about your faith. But missionally, we're always called to go and embrace and reach out. 
the challenge. We must go. Are we going? Where do we go? To whom do we go? Second thing. If we're going to be people who proclaim God's message biblically, just like Jonah goes out and proclaims God's word, we must preach against <coughs> sin. We must preach against sin if it's going to be biblical preaching. So the reality is we live in a world where people want to hear good news that makes them feel comfortable. And that's one of the characteristics of the false prophets in Scripture. Give people what they want to hear. And some of the churches in North America right now are full of people, not because the great revival from the Spirit is broken out, but because behind the pulpit is a false teacher. A wolf in sheep's clothing, as spoken by the Savior, who is not preaching the gospel, but is giving sinners the comfort of continuing in sin. But if we're going to be spokespersons for the living God, and we're going to go out and share God's message, ultimately we have to share what God is passionately attacking and seeking to deal with. And that is the very serious issue of sin. And it's going to offend people. It's going to make people mad. People are going to hate you. Jesus says, they hated me first. They're going to hate you. Why? Because when you preach, when you speak the word of God and talk about what God is not pleased with and what he is attacking, as Jonah goes to these Ninevites, what is God attacking in Nineveh, this great city? The reality of sin. So you're going to offend people who think that humanity is good. You're going to offend people who think that no one should ever be looked down upon. They can't, that people can't be accepted the way they are. And will offend people who desperately, by their own moral compass, seek to live good lives. But if you're going to be faithful to preach the word of the Lord, God's message, we must preach against sin. I've had some very interesting conversations with people, nobody that has stayed, but people that have left and have accused me of being a narrow-minded, hateful preacher. I was like, well, okay, why would you say that? Well, you're always talking about this sin thing how we need to change, how we have these problems in our lives. Why can't we just be good? Why can't God just love us? He loves the whole world. Talk about that. But if we're going to be faithful to preach what God is talking about and dealing with, you can't neglect it. You can't neglect preaching against sin. Because ultimately, 
it's the very thing that God is dealing with, and it's the very thing that, if it is not dealt with, will cause someone to enter eternal wrath. It's a very serious thing. So we should never get rid or dumb down sin or, or try to emphasize the love of God and, and somehow get rid of the justice of God because sin has to be preached for people to realize there is a problem. There's a problem with humanity. There's a problem with them. There's a problem. They have offended in a very serious way the living God, and there are consequences for that. That's why preaching can be very lonely because you're preaching against. You're attacking a very big issue called sin. I can only imagine. I've experienced what it's like to preach to maybe a hundred people at the most in my life. I can't even imagine Jonah going into this city, this great city, and saying, You guys, you great city, you're wicked. You rebelled against the living God, and you have a problem. You say you're great, but you're not. And this city is going to be destroyed because of your actions. Like, oh, man. <clears throat> I ask myself, would I have done it? If I knew, okay, like I said, the message of Jonah here, it's not like Isaiah in some context. He's not going and saying, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. No, this is a message of attack. This is a message of preaching against sin. Would I have gone to such a hostile city and preached against their wickedness? The answer is I honestly have no idea. But we do know how Jonah was able to do it. Why he was able to do it. Because the next thing, he had a deep knowledge of the call of God and the God who was calling him to do it. Now, it was a very bumpy road for Jonah to remind himself just who the God was who was calling him. You know, one almost shipwrecked later and being inside the belly of a fish, he got a good reminder of just the God that was calling him to this task. But it was a deep revelation reminder of just who that creator of the heavens and earth is. And if you, if you're going to go with confidence church into this world into this town into your workplace into your coffee shop into wherever you go with your friends or your family workers and you're gonna have the boldness to speak up against sin and, and speak out against sin you better have a deep conviction of the god who is calling you to do it what gives you confidence to stand against the crowds knowing who it is that has called you
you will quickly enter preaching which desires to please people when you forget the God who ultimately called you to do the preaching. But Jonah knows who God is. And it would be worse to not go preach against sin than to face the opposition that Nineveh could bring. And what's going to give us the confidence to go out in the coffee shops and, and deal with sin and tell people, you know, hey, humanity is not good. There is an issue. It's sin. We have violated the living God. You're nuts. You're narrow-minded. You're crazy. It's going to be a confidence to face those kind of accusations and opposition, knowing who the God is who's called you and sent you out. Knowing that there's nothing that can happen that can stand against you. That not even death itself can take away the promises which he's given to you. If God is on our side, who can stand against us? We sing that. We say that. They're not coffee mugs. We need to believe that if we're going to go out in confidence and proclaim the hard message of the gospel, the offensive part. And I don't know about you, but in this nation, it's getting a lot more challenging to share the offensive part of the gospel. But we have to know who our God is and be confident of that if we're going to go out and have the confidence to do that. <coughs> Jonah confidently goes to this great city and preaches against them because he knows the God that sent him. Next thing, the dual, the dual tasks that are associated in preaching. And so what I mean is there's two, two things that are at work when we preach. First of all, there's a human responsibility. Jonah has the human responsibility of going and speaking the message. He tried to get out of this. Ultimately, through the whole rough process of the storm and, and the fish, now he realizes that God is God, he is obedient to God, he desires his will above his own now, and he goes, and he speaks the word. Out of Jonah's mouth comes the message. Ninevites are hearing this Israelite come and speak this message. But in biblical preaching, when you are sharing the word of God with people, there is another preacher who was at work. Who is that? Well, not in the convicting part that you're on you're on the opposition, but it's God, who's not evil but good. God. Your responsibility, and this is important we get this straight, and Jonah had to learn this as well. You are responsible to opening your mouth and sharing the news. 
That is your responsibility. Making people believe it. Making people realize the sin thing is real. This God thing is real. This Jesus thing is real. That's not your responsibility. So don't try. Don't put the effort or the weight of it on your shoulders because then you'll be carrying a burden that is not your own or not meant to be your own. God, the Spirit of God, we know from the Gospel of John, comes to convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. He is the one who is ultimately speaking and directing and teaching as the human spokesperson, human preacher, preaches the word of God. God is at work. John Calvin, a scholar of Reformation times, second preacher is always at work, and that preacher is the Spirit of God. How do we know this? How are we reminded about this here in this passage? Because we're going to get to the Ninevites' response, but Jonah's the one who's talking, but who do they believe? They hear God. doesn't say they believe Jonah. Jonah's talking, they hear God. Because God is at work in the preacher. That's why every time you are going and sharing the gospel with your friend or your family. I hope you know that you realize that you are not on your own there. But what's happening in that moment? Who's talking? Who's actually speaking through you? Every time that I get up and preach on Sunday morning, it's Eric Green's voice you're hearing, but any conviction that happens, any eureka moments... Any moments where you're like, I never saw that before. Who's talking? God. Wouldn't that change things when it comes to our disobedience towards being missional. Perhaps, and just perhaps, we would be a lot more bold. We'd be a lot more faithful. We'd be a lot more excited about being missional if we understood the fact that when we go and share the gospel, the living God speaks through us to people. Summer 2005, a July evening around a campfire, my friend Pastor Chris Quiron spoke a message. And ultimately through that message, though it was his voice I was hearing, the living God spoke to me. There are opportunities for each and every single one of you who is a disciple of Christ to be missional, to go out and share the good news and God will speak through you speak to people and people will come to trust in him. Lot won't. 
but he will build his kingdom through the proclamation of his word. And we have the privilege of being used by him to do that. So be encouraged with this aspect of preaching because it's so important that we grasp this. And then as a result of the preaching of the word of God to Nineveh, we see now the response the Ninevites give to God as they hear God speak through the prophet Jonah. Well, first of all, it says they believed God. So Jonah speaks, shares the bad news of sin. doesn't get there to Nineveh and says, oh, what fine craftsmen you all are. And build them up first before he delivers the blow. But he gets to the heart of the matter, preaches sin, God speaks through him, and now the Ninevites believe God. Some may ask, does this mean that Nineveh believed in God? Which what I mean by that is, is this a saving faith? So is this, does this mean that Jonah goes and proclaims the message of judgment, a message against their sin, and through that, they now come to trust in Yahweh? Some will say, yes, Nineveh, the Nineveh becomes proselytes or those who come to trust in Israel's God who are foreigners from foreign nations. There's nowhere in the scriptures that suggests that's the case. In fact, the very reason that Nahum has to speak against Nineveh later on, after Jonah, is because this does not take place. There's no saving faith happening here. And we are also shown by the fact that the, they believed in God and not the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, grammatically, the term here for God, they believed God, is Elohim, which is a general term for God in the Old Testament. When talking about a covenantal God, a saving God, the name that was used was the name that was revealed to Israel, Yahweh, which is when it is capitalized as the Lord. Whenever God is speaking to Jonah, it is the word of the Lord, the personal God in which he has a covenant and saving faith in. But whenever the Gentiles are speaking of the Lord, the term Elohim is used. That's why the sailors don't go and say, call upon the Lord, but they say, call upon your God. See, it's a term for a general term for God. And so what's being, what's being shown here by the fact that they believe God? Well, they believe that he is a deity. They believe he is a God. And they believe that he has the power to do what he says he can do. But nowhere are they saying, you are the God of heaven and earth and we give our lives to you. They're just confessing, yes, you are a God. You are a deity and you can carry out this judgment and we can be wiped out. We believe that you can do this. This God of Israel, 
So it's not saving faith, but it is a faith of some kind in the power of Israel's God. Which we've already seen demonstrated with who in chapter 1? When Jonah is thrown into the sea, who stands in awe of God? The sailors. So this is the second time in the book of Jonah we've seen a bunch of Gentiles come to have some reverence or fear or trust in the God of Israel. Not saving, but a huge reverence for him and realizing that he is who he claims to be and he can do this. Once again, we have to understand this prophetic book of the Old Testament. If it's pointing to Christ, is reminding us that God is going to, in his great mercy, produce faith not only in Israel, but also in the Gentiles. It's pointing to the ministry of Christ. And Christ's ministry is going to be greater than Jonah's when it comes. And how is it going to be greater? Because through Christ, it's not just going to be a reverence for God, but it will be a saving faith. It will be a faith in which Gentiles not only look at the God of heaven and earth and say, you're a powerful deity, but through Christ, the greater prophet than Jonah, they will say, you're the one true God revealed in Christ, and we trust in you, and you are the Lord. Big difference. But we already begin this to see this happen in the book of Jonah. And so they believe that God can do this and have a fear and reverence for him. And ultimately they believe this because they act on it. You know what you believe in life, something you yet you demonstrate by acting it out? <laughs> and so here they demonstrate the fact they believe God can do this through action. What do they do? Lots of interesting imagery here. I'm going to read it again because it's interesting. They believe God. So they proclaim to fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and turn from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Lots of imagery, lots of actions being demonstrated here because they believe God can destroy them and God is powerful enough to do it. Ultimately, the action which they engage in here is repentance. Because the Ninevites believe that the God of Jonah, the God of Israel, has the ability to destroy the entire city, they act and they repent of their wickedness. A few things to note about their repentance. 
the cause and the source. This is quite remarkable. These wicked, wicked people who are pursuing their own ways, one Israelite shows up, proclaims a message of judgment, and every single one of them realize they are wrong, and they repent. Who's the cause of it? God. The living God, the God who created them, the God who they've offended, the God they've rebelled against, only he can truly make people aware of the fact that they have sinned. And we are reminded through this passage that God can convict and bring about repentance in the hardest of hearts. Or those the world would say are the most wicked of wicked. God can bring about repentance. He is the cause and the source. There's no one on the face of the planet that God cannot produce this miracle in. Good ringtone. No worries, that's catchy. Do you know anybody in your life that you think, boy, like that person, that guy, that woman is just so hard hearted? Boy, that's a, that's a tough task with them. I don't know if even God could turn that guy around. And they're usually very intelligent. Yep. Yep. There's some smart ones, and there's some stubborn ones, and there's some completely mm-hmm. foolish ones. They're all foolish, ultimately, but mm-hmm. I know what you mean. Well, this is a reminder that there's no one on the face of the planet who cannot be changed. God performs the miracle of repentance. He initiates it. No one goes and says, I'm going to get right with God today. So once again... In relation to the preaching of God's word, if we open our mouths and share the gospel even to those who are so hard-hearted against it, but God is going to be the one who does the convicting. And a lot of the times... We look around at the church and who God has changed, we're shocked. I'll tell you one person that I'm shocked who's here tonight. Me! You would ask me in high school if Eric Green would be sitting behind a Bible teaching a bunch of people the book of Jonah? I'd say, I think you're nuts. 
Now we sing that song, I'm so glad you're part of the family of God. They're singing to me, I'm surprised you're part of the family of God. Isn't that the case with all of us? <laughs> I wasn't chasing God. I wasn't saying, yes, Lord, I desire your will. No, I, was, I was going to Tarshish. I was completely going in a rebellion, completely like the Assyrians. Not that I was cutting people's heads off and marching them around on the poles, but I was engaging in sin. We all were. But God can rescue us. He can rescue anyone. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the fact that his kindness can bring about repentance. So if you know someone who is in your life and you are sharing the gospel and they seem to be running further and further from God, be encouraged. Keep sharing because you don't know. One day, you may see the miracle of repentance. You know, there was a there was a wife, I remember hearing about this at a missions conference once, but the wife was saying, you know, my husband, for 60 years in our marriage, I got up every morning and I prayed, will you just let him trust you? Because he wasn't saved. 60 years Later, he comes into the living room one afternoon and says, I need you to pray with me because I need to trust in Christ. 60 years! Most of us, if we're honest, we'd be done by five. Man, there's people in my life, relatives that I prayed for for a year or two and I don't see results. And I'm going to be honest with you right now. My prayer for them and their salvation, I've all of a sudden started thinking that it's just not going to happen. But God can change the hardest of hearts as the hope. So be encouraged of that. God is the source and the author of repentance. And it's in his time and it's in his sovereignty. And it's according with the person's own will. But the reality is God can do it. You know, someone in the New Testament who was shocked that he had come to repentance was Paul. But God can bring about. And and not just the wonderful thing about the power of God here. It's not the norm, and we can't expect it to be the norm. But God God doesn't just sometimes cause individuals to repent, but he can turn entire nations to himself. He can bring entire cities to himself. Do you realize that tomorrow, when the question period of House of Commons takes place, if God, by a sovereignty, wanted to, he could turn everyone around? Because he has the power to do so. Now, why doesn't he? It's all part of his plan. He's not going to make people choose him. But here we see the fact that ultimately God could do it. He can do it. He has the power to do it. Change the hardest of hearts. So yes. Can God change the heart of the Prime Minister? Yep. Can God change the heart of the stubborn person down the road selling coffee? Yep. He can do whatever he wants to because he is God. He's the source and author of repentance. 
Next thing you see is the communal and individual aspect of the repentance. See, what the beautiful thing is we don't just see a bunch of individuals here getting together, but we see a communal repentance. The city repents. They, they acknowledge that together they have violated God's law, and they come and they repent. But ultimately, through the declaration that the king makes that let every man and woman respond, it reminds us that though communal is a beautiful picture of community repentance, ultimately every single person still has to be responsible for their own sin. So There's a communal aspect, but every single person ultimately, if they're going to repent properly, has to be accountable to their own sin. That's why even here at Elgin Street Baptist on Sunday mornings we have a communal confession. Forgive, forgive us of our sins, but at the same time we're also given the opportunity for private silent confession because we have to acknowledge our own individual sins in the process. That's part of repentance. Next, we're reminded of who repentance is to be directed to. Call out to God. Meaning, if you're going to deal with sin, if you're going to repent from sin, ultimately you have to acknowledge the fact that sin ultimately is a violation of one God and one God alone. We've already seen the fact that there's multi-gods in this world or supposedly, according to false worship and idols, we saw the sailors saying to one another, call out to your gods. But here we see through the Ninevites, if you want to deal with sin, you've got to ultimately deal with one God. The God whose sin is a violation towards. We have all sinned. This entire world has sinned. And there are lots of gods that people chase. You can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Sikh, you can be whatever you are, but there's only one God who ultimately we are to repent and turn to. That's part of the offensive message of the gospel. A lot of people will say, oh, no, no, there, there are so many ways. There's so many gods. There's so many ways to get repentance and to deal with this issue. No, no, no. There's only one. Only one. And of course, we know that that one God is through Christ Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Next, we see the genuineness of the repentance. They put on sackcloth and they fast. <coughs> They're trying to make a fashion statement in Assyria. <clears throat> Alright everybody. Put on your finest sackcloth. Let's try to impress this God. No. Sackcloth was a what you wore when you were mourning. Fasting was something you did when you were mourning, and if you were in a really, really deep state of mourning and deep grief, then even the animals joined in with you. So what's the significance of the fact that even their animals are in sackcloth? This was deep grievance of their sin. They didn't actually just, you know, oh, we're wrong. We should deal with this. But they were actually grieved by their sin. They wanted to turn from their sin. You know, repentance, biblically, is not just, oh, I've sinned, but it's grieving their sin and desiring to turn from it. 
A lot of people say they've repented, but they've never actually grieved their sin nor desire to turn from it. Genuine repentance is when you grieve and when you desire to turn from the sin, which is the violation towards God. And what's the sin they are guilty of that they're seeking to repent from? Well, it's described, turn from your evil way and the violence that is in your hands. The law of God, which sin is a violation of, I was saying this with the kids this past Sunday, can be summarized by two commandments. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Which then Christ goes on to explain loving as he loved the church. What kind of sin are these Ninevites acknowledging? Well, it's not a violation of loving God. There's nowhere in this confession that says, we have not loved you, we have not obeyed you, God, we have not worshipped you the way we were created to. No, the evil ways which are expanded upon here in this text, what they are guilty and what they are grieving is their mistreatment of one another. So it's not the loving of God's sin that they're repenting from, it's their not loving the neighbor. And we know that for a fact, as we reminded about Assyria, how they mistreated one another. So here they have a deep conviction of their social sin with one another, and they seek to change, and they seek to dedicate themselves to serious social justice or to love their neighbor. And that is the sin from which they are desiring to turn from. Once again, it's not a saving faith. Not happening here. They're not saying, Yahweh, we've messed up and now we trust in you. They're saying, okay, we've, we've mistreated one another and now we're going to seek to change that. So we've seen a lot of things about the nature of repentance from them and, and the nature of their repentance. We also see how their repentance is misguided something they struggle with as they repent and maybe it's something that people struggle with even today at times even around this table who knows they're repenting but they have no idea if it's actually going to work who can tell if God will turn and relent so we're going to repent we've been given the option of repentance here that this city may not be Destroyed, And here we are, we, we truly are grieving, we truly want to turn from our social injustice. But will God actually forgive? Will God actually spare us? <coughs> Anybody ever heard that question asked by someone before? Uh, I hear of this God thing and the gospel and the cross, but 
this is what I've done, and it's a pretty it's a list of a lot of awful things, but you say to repent and turn to Christ and but will he actually do that for me? Is this is this gospel thing he he can actually forgive me? And people come, they have no idea. You know, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He'll forgive me, he won't forgive me. <coughs> and so some people wake up today and they're like, ah, I'm forgiven. The next day, I don't know if I am. <laughs> but those who truly repent to God through Christ <coughs> are forgiven. And God will spare. We don't have to be like the Ninevites and be like, I don't know if this thing's going to work. So that's the repentance, then verse 10, the last verse in the chapter. God sees their works, he responds. Some may expect God to say something like this. Well, I see that you are grieving your social sin and your violation of love for neighbor, but uh, you missed the first part of my law. You don't seem to grasp the fact that you violated your loving me, the ultimate law that is before loving your neighbor, so I'm not going to accept this repentance because it's not complete. You don't truly see the real picture here, Nineveh. You're grieved by the fact that you've hurt one another, but what about the serious violation of idolatry and sin against my name? Or maybe they'll say, well, you know, Nineveh, I would love to spare you, but boy, your faith is lacking. So ye of little faith, I shall not grant this repentance. I shall not honor it. So we see that it's incomplete. We see that it's struggling. We see that they're not completely confident that repentance is even going to work. And God can simply say, well, sorry, no can do. 40 days overthrown. But no. The creator of heaven and earth sees their work, sees their repentance as broken as it is, and he does not go through with the promised judgment. Nineveh does not make the list of overthrown cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. But rather, the Lord has mercy on them. Now we're going to see Jonah's reaction to this next week in chapter 4, and it's, it's a spectacular reaction. But we need to focus on what's actually being revealed here about God and his purpose and this recanting of his judgment. First of all, we are reminded that the purpose of Jonah's mission to the city of Nineveh was not to bring about a saving faith in Nineveh. But ultimately to address a sin that is very, very offensive to the heart of God in which he desires to passionately deal with. And that is the sin of not loving 
your neighbor. The fact that he does not bring about judgment because they have grasped and grieved over and repented from their social sin, this was the heart of the mission. Loving your neighbor, loving one another, social sin is something that God seriously desires to attack and is offensive to him. And it's a theme that we've already seen all throughout Jonah. What was Jonah guilty of not doing when he was sleeping on the boat and everyone was about to go into a shipwreck? He wasn't loving his neighbor. What does God produce in the Gentile mariners as Jonah says, cast me into the sea? And they say, no. What are they beginning to do? Love their neighbor. What does he go and oppose Nineveh with? You're not loving your neighbor. And here, when they finally realize it and repent, God says, okay. Mission accomplished. You're not going to face the judgment. But through this, it reveals the heart and character of God against the reality of social sin. Now, ultimately we know from the scriptures that God desires saving faith. The love of himself as the only God above everything. But the book of Jonah particularly addresses the reality of the fact that God wants us to love our neighbor. And the ministry of the one who is greater than Jonah will even address God's ultimate desire even more. But the book of Jonah only gives us so much. But the heart of it is loving your neighbor. So social sin. We're out to go and preach against sin. As the people of God in this world, we need to be preaching ultimately that people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But with that, we need to be preaching and modeling for this world the reality of loving one another. And be careful that we have to include both of those things because the reality is it's very easy, and some churches do it, where it's all about social justice. Where all they're proclaiming is let's love one another. Let's treat one another. Let's attack the issue of this. Attack the issue of that. And it becomes a, a social movement. But the gospel is love for God and love for one another. And But if the other extent is sometimes churches can be so busy focusing on the first part, love for God, that they neglect the second part, love for neighbor. So social injustice like racism and neglecting the poor, and abortion, and right to die, and all these things? Is there anybody that God is sending out into the world to say something about it? Yeah. Us. His people, who are called to go and announce the good news and preach against sin, and part of it is social injustice. And so if we're going to preach the gospel of Christ, but loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we must also preach social justice. How does the church reflect the heart of God? 
When the church not only goes out and preaches the cross of Christ that makes one right with God, but when the church, with the power of the Holy Spirit, addresses issues like sex trafficking, addresses issues like neglect of the poor and the homeless, of abuse of seniors, whatever it may be, if the church is out there doing those things empowered by the Spirit, that is a reflection of the newness of life because that is loving our neighbor. But the question is, the reality is actually, how many times are we like Jonah, where we know the promises of God, we know who God is, but we fail to love those around us. We may love those who are alike, you know, our Elgin Street family, our co-workers, our friends. But what about the people down the road who aren't so nice? The rough crowd, shall we say. How are we loving them? How do we see them? Jesus taught this again when he taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we just say, oh, Good Samaritan, isn't that great? But for, to say that the Samaritan was the one who loved the neighbor and was one that ultimately modeled the love of God. How does the church show love to those who persecute them, who've offended them? As people of God are to care passionately about social injustice because God cares passionately about it. Step revealed to the mission of Jonah. The second thing we see is that God is gracious here to a people who are not yet his own. The land of Nineveh, of Assyria, a wicked people, not part of Israel, far off from the covenant promises of God. God in this moment has mercy upon them and spares them from judgment. Once again, what's this pointing to? Love of God revealed in Christ. Because there's coming a time. Send the good shepherd. I have sheep, but I also have sheep who are not of this fold, who I'm also called to go and get. Who's he talking about there? The Gentiles. The book of Jonah... God has grace and spares the people that are not part of Israel. This points to the beautiful truth that a bunch of Gentiles like us tonight are around this table redeemed. God's going to have mercy not just upon Israel, but upon the world. And Jonah is sent to go and be the prophet to proclaim this. And God does it through the ministry of Jonah, but greater shall it be done through the ministry of Christ. Every Gentile, every sinner, there is a chance for God's grace and mercy to be known. It's for the wicked Assyrian. It's for the terrorist. It's for the members of ISIS. God's grace through Christ. 
the greater prophet, but God's going to have mercy on people that are not his own. Last thing, God and the reality of conditional plans. Have you ever made plans before and you just don't keep them? <laughs> My wife, if she's here tonight, would say yes. Yes, you do. I'll make dinner tonight, hon. I had that plan. I just seemed to forget it. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> We've all been there. Now, God has a plan here, the sovereign Lord of the universe. I'm going to destroy you guys. Unless there's some act of repentance in which I, I see that there's a change, and then I won't. So there's moments where God makes possible plans in the scriptures. Not definite, but this could happen. I might do this. You know, in Revelation, if you took that last time, in, in chapter 3, way back in chapter 3, if you remember that chapter 3 existed in Revelation, talks to the church and says, you know what? Unless you regain your first love, do that, or I'm going to come and remove my lampstand from you. So I have a plan of action, which I will carry out, unless something changes here. So what do we make sense of these plans? Is God a conditional God? Is God a God who changes his mind? Well, there's some prophecies in Scripture that are conditional, and that are warnings, and that are things that are called to bring about repentance and actions that God will do unless a certain behavior of humanity is demonstrated. But that does not mean that there are always that is the case. You know, for instance, the gospel, is that a conditional plan? Well, I've sent Christ into the world. He's going to save you. But now that I've thought about it, no, you're all sinners and you deserve this hell thing. No, that's not a conditional plan. That's not an example of these conditional prophecies that we see in the scripture. The gospel is truth. And so in the scriptures, when you're seeing prophecies, you have to understand what is certain and what is conditional. And all the conditional ones are, unless you do this, if you don't do this, But then there's the ones that are for certain, the ones I have promised it's going to happen. He who has believed in me has already passed from death into everlasting life. So it's just a really interesting look into the sovereignty, into the plans and purposes of God. But he's not a God who changes his mind on the important things he's already decided. And obviously, this conditional plan aspect is... Something when we get in chapter 4, Jonah's going to wrestle with. So chapter 3, lots to say about the nature of God and second chances and the preaching of God's word and the repentance of the Ninevites and in God's response to the repentance. So much truth to remember and learn. And we pray that we would treasure it and grasp it. But let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this evening. We're thankful for all the truths that we've learned and grasped and some we've only begun to touch the surface on and begun to explore, but we're thankful for your truth.
thankful for how it leads us and sets us free. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thankful for the transformation that you accomplished through Jonah. We pray that you produce that transformation in us. God, make us obedient no matter the cost. Help us be convicted of who you are that we may fearlessly stand against opposition and fearlessly proclaim the message of sin knowing that you work through that proclamation to bring about repentance. You are the God who not only cares about us loving you but loving our neighbor and so we pray God help us to love you and love our neighbor and therefore honor the law of God. Forgive us for the times that we have not where we have turned a blind eye to social injustice. Help us be the voice of God which speaks against it, we pray. In your holy name, amen.